After a lengthy period of incubation, President Trump has unveiled a plan intended to resolve the long-running Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Whether it can achieve that, whether such a goal is achievable anytime soon, is worth an in-depth discussion. And there's no one better to have it with than Jonathan Shanzer, Vice President for Research here at FDD, who has written widely and well on Palestinian politics and related topics. We're glad he's with us, and we're glad you're joining us too. I'm Cliff May, and you're listening to Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Dr. Shanzer, I am going to start with two quibbles. We'll talk about good and the bad and the ugly, and the, but two quibbles, but they, they bother me. The plan's called Peace to Prosperity, that's fine, but the subtitle is A Vision to Improve the Lives of the Palestinian and Israeli People. Now, that's the title. Shouldn't that be Palestinian and Israeli peoples? Plural. This isn't just semantics. The whole idea behind a two-state solution, it seems to me, if that's what you're going for, is two states for two peoples, two nations, Jews and Palestinians. Now, they're cousins, certainly, but they're not one people. They have different, the related languages, cultures, and histories. Anyway, my point is I, I see no possibility of peaceful coexistence until and unless these two peoples recognize each other and accept the fact that they are destined to inhabit the same rough neighborhood. And I'm just surprised that the authors of this plan didn't say, yeah, we got two peoples. It's got to be a vision for two peoples. I think that's a fair criticism. Um, I actually think that if you read deeper into the the plan, I think it does spell that out mm -hmm. uh, on on some level. I think it does, but it's not in the in the headline. It's not right. in the title. Right. Well, leave it to a journalist to get upset about that. An old that, editor right? like me, right. this kind of thing bothers me. Go, yeah, Send go it ahead. back with some red pen. Exactly what I want to do. Talk about then more generally. You've read the plan. I have too. I spent a lot of <laughs> the weekend doing. Talk about what you see in it that you like, uh, that you don't like, that you just, just you start us off on. This. Sure. Well, m maybe we'll just spend thirty seconds on what the plan does. Uh, the plan provides Israel uh, with the ability to annex um, the existing settlements that it has throughout the West Bank. It forces them to relinquish all the illegal settlements, that is settlements that have been built uh, without the express consent of the Israeli government on territory or land that was seen as private land held by Palestinians either currently or previously. Um, the map itself looks not too dissimilar from previous maps presented by other administrations. There is the one sort of thing that uh, struck me as a bit odd, which is that there is a tunnel that they propose to connect to the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. That would, of course, be the most attacked tunnel probably in the history of tunnels. Um, and it just probably would not function terribly well over time. Uh, but we could quibble over that. But at the end of the day, uh, it doesn't look too dissimilar from the two-state solution that many others have envisioned. The difference is, is that, and this is in the words of Michael Oren, um, instead of land for peace, it is peace for land. In other words, it forces the Palestinians to come to terms with the fact that the Israelis are going to get the concessions up front. They get what they want. And then after that, if the Palestinians comply, then they get what they want. And the way to doing that is to basically solve the problem of pay for slay and funding of terrorists, uh, combating corruption and ending a culture of, um, uh, you know, an inability to recognize Israel as a Jewish state. All those things are put on the table for the Palestinians to digest and to eventually embrace. Right now, of course, the Palestinians refuse to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Let's just drill in a little bit more because I do think it makes some sense. We, land for peace has been sort of the phrase that's been used for generations of so-called 
might one might say peace processors, and it hasn't worked for a number of reasons. That's the term, by the way, is Osloids. Osloids <laughs> because of Oslo 1993, which was the plan that 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 that, that was so many people believe was going to bring peace, and of course it it failed. I think we can say pretty egregiously. Um, but where Israel has given up land. Gaza 2005, it withdrew unilaterally, said it's all yours. And it was sort of an experiment of that. If Gaza became a sort of Singapore on the Eastern Mediterranean, then it wouldn't be hard to find a solution for the West Bank. But of course, it became Hamastan and it became a terrorist enclave. Southern Lebanon, the Israelis withdrew from uh, from 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 there, and of course, you've got missiles pointing at Israel, the Sinai, in exchange for a peace deal with Egypt that's been somewhat successful. Nonetheless, you have terrorists inhabiting it, and the Israelis now have to work with the Egyptians to try to defeat the terrorists who are more anti-Egyptian than they are anti there So there's all sorts of reasons why land for peace does not seem like a promising proposition the experiments have been run certainly if you if the if you could have a palestinian leadership that said we understand we've got to we don't have to love the israelis but we have to live side by side with them and we want that to happen without bloodshed then you have the basis to say okay where are our borders going to be how are we going to deal with all the various issues but we've never but hamas absolutely rules that out as even a possibility. Hamas says, no, the only answer is jihad and the reconquest, as they see it, of these lands by Muslims. And Mahmoud Abbas is seen as a pragmatist or a moderate of the, who, who, who is the head of the governing authority, let's put it that way, on the, on the West Bank. I, I'm not sure he read this plan. He certainly rejected it out of hand immediately. And, and my view is that at 84 years old and 16 years into an elected four-year term, he just doesn't see himself on the White House lawn shaking hands with any Israeli leader and saying the conflict is over. Uh, it, it, that's not the legacy he wants for himself. No, I, I don't think it is. And I think he's already kind of resigned to the fact that uh, he's not going to be the peacemaker. Although um, a couple of interesting notes. One is uh, we're hearing from some in Israel that uh, Abbas – could actually come to the table, but just not until after the American elections here in November. If he sees that Trump is still around after November, well, then he probably has no choice, seeing that there is another four years in front of him where the Palestinian dream could be eroded by this plan if he doesn't weigh in. Um, and uh, then there's also the interesting reports that came out over the weekend. Israeli news was reporting that Gina Haspel, the head of our CIA, went over to the West Bank and didn't meet with Abbas himself, but met with uh, Majid Faraj, the head of Palestinian intelligence, met with Hussein al-Sheikh, who's the guy that kind of uh, coordinates the relationship between Israel and the Palestinians. So there is possibly some uh, the beginning of a process, believe it or not, where Abbas says he's not going to do this. But yet all of a sudden he's talking to Americans, understanding that if he doesn't do so now, perhaps he'll lose another opportunity, which has been the unfortunate history of the Palestinians for decades. Yeah. And look, this is Trump's peace plan. I think it's clear that the lead author has been Jared Kushner, an advisor to him, his son-in-law, obviously. Kushner has said what we have here, and he's worked hard on it, no question about it, is not written in stone. These are not tablets that have been taken down from the top of Mount Sinai. This is a basis on which to negotiate further if the Palestinians want to do so. Now, here's the thing. Up to now, the Palestinians have taken the point of view that they go into negotiations, they get the best offer they can, and they turn it down. And then when negotiations resume, they say, the offer you gave us last time, the best offer, that's where we start and we negotiate from there. That's a good strategy. It hasn't worked out for them, but I can see why they want to do it. He's sort of saying, no, you get offers and you turn them down and they and, and they may expire. And you're, you're not going to start from the best baseline you ever wanted. You're going to start from this baseline and this baseline assures Israel of security. That's sort of how he's turned this on its head, right? hundred percent. And and actually what I, what I find interesting about this, regardless of whether you like the plan, don't like the plan, what we have now are two different positions offered by the Americans that, um, that give the two sides uh, boundaries for the first time. 
right? You have the previous plans that sort of push the Israelis to give up certain things in advance, and the Palestinians liked negotiating from that perspective. It gave them equal footing. It gave them a certain amount of strength at the negotiating table. And now you have another plan that puts the Palestinians a bit on their back foot, right? They're being asked to give up things up front, much in the way the Israelis were being asked to give up things before. So now all of a sudden you have boundaries where the Palestinians and Israelis can come if they decide to have this conversation. It's still unclear whether Abbas is going to do this or not. But if he decides to come in, you now know the starting points of both sides. And it actually, uh, to a certain extent, minimizes the amount of space in between. And so this could be an important impact, lasting impact of the Trump administration on one of the world's thorniest challenges. Right. But as you say, Abbas will probably think, I should wait and see if I've got Bernie Sanders in the White House next time, I'll get a better, uh, we'll start from a better place. If I have Trump, then for four years, this is where it starts. This is where, it, this is where it starts. And I might as well weigh in because it could get, because part of what's in this deal is the, is the threat, if, if you will. That if you say no to this, it doesn't get better, it gets worse because there are things we're going to sit still and let the Israelis do in order to make their own arrangements. And we'll talk about those in a second. But 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 you see what I'm saying? That, that That's why he will want to say, just fasten your seatbelt, don't go out of the house, we're, we're just going to we'll wait till November. Correct. I mean, first, again, we, we should just note that it looks like they may be buckling a little bit already based on the reports that we saw over the weekend. But then beyond that, there is the question of can the Palestinians sit this out for a full 10 months? Yeah. That is a long time to wait and to allow the Israelis to deliberate over what they may or may not want to annex. Now, of course, there's some risks on the Israeli side for annexation, and we can talk about those as well. But for the Palestinians to not do anything for 10 months is a huge risk on their part. And this is why they would be wise to try to wade in now, maybe not to negotiate fully over everything, but even if they sent out kind of a few trial balloons saying, well, you know what, we refuse to negotiate as long as this is on the table, right? You know, pieces of it. But right now they're not doing any of that to their detriment. An another thing they could do that would seem to me to make more sense, you tell me, is to say, look, we're willing to sit down and negotiate. And let's keep in mind, they haven't seriously negotiated with the Israelis for a very long time, pretty much throughout the Obama administration. They weren't willing to do that, right? Not really. So they could say, we'll negotiate, but not if you annex. So if you hold off on annexation, we'll talk to you. You right. talk to us. We'll talk to you. Don't annex. Don't do anything that you, that we, that, that becomes permanent. No, don't change facts on the ground in any radical, but we'll talk. I can imagine. An Israeli prime minister, whether it's the current one, Bibi Netanyahu, or whether it's another one like like Gantz, saying, okay, if we're talking, that's fine. If the talks break down, we may do other things. And, and that's actually, I have to say, for all the phone calls that I've made over the last week or so trying to get up to speed on this, that is probably the most interesting aspect of, of all of this. You know, there's a lot that's written out here in the plan. You can see things very deliberately spelled out. But the process and timeline for annexation is probably the most loosely worded and, 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 and very loosely understood element of this plan. And what we're beginning to get a sense of is that there are d different timelines on the U.S. side as well as on the Israeli side. All of these benefit the Palestinians to an extent, right? On the U.S. side, uh, we're hearing from some elements of the administration that there needs to be some kind of a joint committee between the U.S. and Israel to determine what can or should be annexed and then along what timelines. Um, then there are others within the administration who are saying we can annex, we can authorize the annexation um, um, tomorrow and that the Israelis can do it the day after. Um, and, and so there's a, dis there's a discrepancy there. And then on the Israeli side, we're hearing also very similar things. You had Netanyahu come out immediately and say, we're going to annex and we're going to do it this weekend. Well, the weekend's gone and he didn't do it. Um, then we're hearing that the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, and, and the Shin Bet, the internal security services, uh, have not issued a statement about um, what kind of security is needed in order to annex. There are questions about whether an interim government 
can annex legally. And there's the attorney general who is at odds right now with Netanyahu on a range of issues who also will have to sign off on this and probably doesn't want to give Bibi that political victory. Mm. And so what we're hearing right now is that it could be three, six or nine months. And so if if we have this postponement of annexation, then that means that this is the moment for the Palestinians to engage because they they can be sure that at least for the next few weeks or few months – Nothing is going to change, and so they have. There's no reason not to engage. Before we get into the weeds, which I want to do, let me throw this out to you because it's kind of a big vision uh, thought. I think, uh, I hope, and that is that the Palestinians have a contradiction. They have, they have, I would say, two dreams, and one dream of the Palestinians is to have their own nation state for the first time in history, and that's an important point because uh, I understand that Abbas held up a map showing what Palestine used to look like when it was ruled by Palestinians. That never happened. There was no such thing. It was ruled. Uh, Gaza and the West Bank I mean, were ruled by uh, Egypt and Jordan, respectively. You had the British Empire. You had the Ottoman Empire. There's never been a Palestinian state. But okay, there's the dream of having a state of their own. And I'm sympathetic to that dream. I think a lot of people are. The Palestinians also have the dream of destroying, once and for all, exterminating the Jewish state, exterminating Israel, having Israel go the way of the crusader state, have it gone as a because they call it a colonialist implant and the Jews have to go somewhere. You, the prop, It seems to me, as long as they have this dream of destroying Israel, it's going to be much more challenging and maybe impossible because the Israelis aren't going any, going to accept this, obviously, and I don't think most Americans are and Europeans I don't know about. But as long as they have this dream of exterminating the Jewish state, very hard for them to achieve their dream of having their own state. Now, by the way, let me just add this. I don't think Hamas really dreams of a Palestinian state. They're not nationalists. They're Islamists. They dream of an Islamic emirate that's part of a larger caliphate. That's really what they dream of, I think. Abbas may be more a nationalist than an Islamist, and he may think in in, in the terms of a state. But they can't. They have to give up one dream to have the other. And so far, they've been unwilling to do it. Yeah, I mean, I would I would say this about Hamas. Um, I think the admixture of nationalism and Islamism makes it incredibly potent, and it's still unclear exactly what they want out of it. But I, I wouldn't discount the nationalist component of what Hamas wants. Um, it just makes it all that much more confusing when they work with the Iranians and they embrace a certain jihadism. Well, and there's a Hamas um, charter, which is very clear. It's yeah. jihad. It's not – we're not going to settle this through negotiations, through conference very specifically. And yeah. and it says we're going to obliterate the Palestinian state. But it says who we are. It says Islam. This That's is right. a charter. That's we'll right. obliterate That's the right. Jewish And it's a, it's a Muslim Brotherhood ideology, which is pan-Islamist in, at the end of the day. Uh, so, I mean, uh, I take that on board. I mean, look, th- this problem of um, Palestinian leadership being able to articulate a forward-looking vision for their nationalist project has been a problem from the get-go. Um, it, it was, it was that way in, in the 1940s through the declaration of the state of Israel and the creation of the country. Um, it certainly has been that way since the PLO, uh, uh, rose to power in the late 1960s. And even under Yasser Arafat, when arguably the Palestinians were the closest to realizing their nationalist dream, at the end of the day, he was offered a choice. Uh, he could accept uh, Bill Clinton's offer with Ayoud Barak at Camp David in 2000, or he could launch the second intifada. He chose the latter, and that was imbued with Islamist symbols and, and obviously vi- violence and, and rejectionism. And uh, Mahmoud Abbas has tried to steer the Palestinians away from all of that. The problem is, is that you know his style of governance is more of authoritarian corruption, things that we've talked about here. He has failed to articulate an alternate vision. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's for that reason, at least to some extent, that he's paralyzed right now. Yeah. He just doesn't know what else he can offer the Palestinians, but he also knows that he can't take this either. Well, this is an important point, too, because the Palestinians have been offered statehood in various forms in the past, certainly in 2000, Camp David, Taba, 2001, Um you had Omert um, in 2008 making a very generous offer, like over 90% of the West Bank, capital in Jerusalem, Gaza, all sorts of things. And it's not just that the Palestinians have said, no, we won't accept that. They have never in any of these instances come back and said, okay, 
We're not taking what you've offered, but here's our counter proposal. You take that. Unless you, I mean, there, I mean, they have not done so. There is an Arab so-called peace plan. Um, among other things, though, it says that not only those Palestinians who, for various reasons, fled in 1948 or 67 from what is now Israel must be allowed to come back, but all their descendants, whoever they claim as their descendants, must be able to. That could be up to now. It's, so there's maybe 30,000 or so real Palestinian refugees, but maybe 5 million if you count all their offspring. At that point, of course, that's not a Palestinian state anymore, an Israeli state, a Jewish state anymore. It's a Palestinian state with a Jewish minority whose security is in severe jeopardy. Correct. And, and actually, if you look at the plan, uh, the plan wipes out all of those numbers. I mean, basically, it, it, it kind of puts Israel and the Palestinians in equal footing, acknowledging that they were refugees on both sides uh, during the early decades of the conflict and that, uh, you know, the UNRWA, uh, the UN Relief and Works Agency, doesn't have this kind of um, uh, stranglehold over the conflict any longer. The refugees are not part of this any longer, or nor are their descendants. And that's that's an important aspect of this. Um, Jerusalem, which was always going to be divided in some way, you're looking at very small portions of the city. Um, the, and these are really neighborhoods that were added on after Israel's conquest in 67. These are not kind of the traditional Jerusalem neighborhoods that are, are widely recognized. This is what would go to a, uh, to a future Palestinian state. So what's basically happened here is that the longer the Palestinians have rejected these offers put forth by the United States or Israel, the, um, the, the worse the deal has gotten for them on some level. Now, I would argue that this deal is probably the most realistic in terms of what the Israelis were willing to give up in the first place. Um, it, it actually, I mean, one of the things that the deal did is it, it actually forced the Israelis to say yes or no right at the beginning. And that's one of the really interesting things about this deal. They don't have right now. They just said yes. Right. They're not trying to sit there and quibble over this little piece or that little piece and Netanyahu did this without a whole lot of pushback from the right or the left, which was significant in and of itself. But the Palestinians, based on the history that you've, I think, accurately described, um, they're losing ground. They're losing leverage. And that's always one of the things that I think this plan was going to do. It was going to almost hold up a mirror to the Palestinians to show them that, yes, you have been at the table in the past and you've been viewed as equals. You've been treated as, as if you have the same strength as the Israelis. In fact, they never have. And right now they're seeing their relative weakness very starkly for the first time. And I think the international community is too. The uh, the various Arab states have uh, well, they've sort of hedged their bets on this, right? You had various Arab states speaking generally favorably about the plan, more so than the past. But then, of course, you had the Arab League meet and say, well, we, we reject it. So they're kind of, you know, betting on red and black at the roulette table. Yeah, I mean, uh, we saw an Arab League statement. Uh, the Arab League foreign ministers rejected the plan, and the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, also has come out against the plan. Um, but of course, at at the rollout event uh, at the White House, you had ambassadors from Bahrain, UAE, and Oman in attendance. The statements that came out by the Egyptians as well as some of these other countries was – it wasn't an endorsement. It was more along the lines of you should look at this plan and you should study it and we encourage both sides to talk and to engage. And I think that their understanding was just as you described that you know the, the Kushner's perspective was this is a starting point and that we welcome negotiations and I think that's what the Arab states believed should happen or would happen. I think that these Arab states had very little choice but to reject the plan as is because it does tilt uh, to toward Israel. I think we can be honest about that. Um, but what's really interesting to me is what happens as time goes on. If the Palestinians refuse to negotiate and they wait until after the election and by then they've tested the the uh, the patience of the Trump administration, they've tested the the patience of the Israelis and maybe the Israelis are starting to annex – um, there is a question of what the Arabs do after that because they need Israel and they need the United States. They look at us and the Israelis as partners in their most important struggle, and that is the struggle to contain or defeat Iran. 
Um, this the is Islamic Republic of Iran, which is a revolutionary state, an imperial state, which is a threat to its Sunni Arab neighbors as much at least as it is to the Jewish state of Israel. Correct. And so what's happened since the signing of the nuclear deal of 2015 is the Arab states have gravitated more toward Israel as the only regional power capable of confronting uh, the Islamic Republic. And so there has been what we have been calling here euphemistically in Washington and, and beyond uh, a regional architecture that's being built where the Arabs are working with the Israelis on intelligence and cyber and uh, sharing thoughts about how they can confront Iran. And um, I don't think that's going to stop as a result of this deal. If anything, I think the deal may prod them to even move a bit closer, even when the Palestinians don't like the deal. What I think the Arabs have understood over the last five years is that and what I think the Trump administration has built off of, which is that the uh, Palestinian issue, this challenge of Palestinian nationalism and, and the realization of it, it's not a national interest for the Arab states. Mm -hmm. They don't see this any longer as an emergency that must be solved for them. They think of it as something that would be great if it can be solved. Be solved. And also there was a time, I think, when most of the Arab states thought, yes, if we can rid ourselves, rid the region of Israel, rid the region of, a, of an enclave where Jews have self-determination, that would be a very good thing. I I would posit they don't think that at, the, that at this moment that's such a great idea because then they stand alone against the Islamic Republic of Iran, its ambitions for a hegemony in the region, and they have no nation state with either the intention, the determination, the, the, the military capability of saying no to Iran. They'd have to do it by themselves, and I'm not sure they can do it by themselves. And if they can't, they either – they risk either one of – they have two choices, being conquered – or caving and quit kissing the, the ring of Ayatollah Khamenei. I think that's right. And, and I think I, I would just add a couple more thoughts to that. Number one, um, I also think there's a, real, a realization they're not going to defeat Israel. Even if they wanted Israel to go away how, for however many decades, I think Israel has proven that it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, and so there's a realization after 70 plus years okay, you know what? You've outlasted us, right? We've gone 12 rounds. The Crusader kingdom uh, lasted longer than that. Fine, but, <laughs> but I, I think the point still stands. Um, uh, but, but you know, maybe you're right. So maybe in the back of someone's mind, they're still thinking about, uh, you know, about uh, uh, that, that moment in history. But I think that that's sort of one. But also think about what the Israelis have done to counter Iran. And they've actually shown that they can do it, whether it's uh, taking out uh, Iranian nuclear scientists by, you know, with Mossad agents um, or bombing uh, the factories of precision guided munitions or in Iraq. Or their nuclear archives from under their noses in Tehran. That's I mean, right. Yeah. That's right. And every time Iran Iran has tried to launch attacks against Israel in recent months. The Israelis have thwarted it and then not only thwarted the attack, but then gone and hammered the base from where a drone was launched. And this speaks volumes to the Arab world. And so there is a question of how much more patience they're going to exhibit for a cause that I think they truly care about. I think they do. They would like to see their Arab brethren realize their national aspirations. But I think they are also thinking to themselves you know, at what cost? How much more do I need to suffer as a result of this? And wouldn't it be better if I could work with the Israelis more directly in order to counter the one real threat that I actually have to deal with right now, and that is the Islamic Republic of Iran? It strikes me this plan is a corrective in, in another way, too. On the one hand, every time the Palestinians or the Arabs have said no, to a deal, including in 1948, when there was a UN plan to partition Palestine or Western Palestine into a Jewish state and an Arab state. We didn't talk about Palestinians back in 1948. They've said no, and they've lost ground, literally and figuratively, perhaps. On the other hand, in recent years, I also think there's been a trend going against the Israelis, and it's the trend of really the the narrative, the public relations, the spin, and the is Israel has been somewhat successfully uh, demonized and delegitimized. And I think that the, the great, the, the great gift handed to Israel's enemies was in 2016 at the end of the year, somewhat surprisingly by really, I have to say by president Obama, 
who accepted, if not facilitated, and I think he facilitated, a UN Security Council Resolution 2334, which says that the Israelis have no claim, no legal claim, I think is the, is the phrase, that, no legal basis, I'm sorry, no legal basis for claims to the West Bank, including any part of East Jerusalem, which means including even the 2,000-year-old Jewish quarter of the old city of Jerusalem and all of the holiest sites of the Jews. Well, if that's true, and I think it's not, but if the Israelis have no claim even to that, how do they have claims to Tel Aviv or how do they have claims to the Negev or, or anything else? And if the Israelis have no, if there's no legal basis to any Israeli claims, then at that point, if you're a Palestinian, why would you compromise on anything? Why would you trade anything? They have no claims. They stole something from you. They stole the Jewish quarter from you. They have to give it back or we fight. They, why would they make a compromise? This, it seems to me, was such a damaging blow to, to the Israelis. No way to correct that easily. You can't nullify a UN Security Council resolution. But in a sense, the President Trump has done so. Two ways. One, by moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. That says you have a right to be in Jerusalem. And two, with this plan, which says we're not going to start with the idea that the Israelis have no legal basis to any claims or even to a right to exist. That's not where we, the United States, begins. That seems strikes me as something of an achievement for this plan. Um, yeah, I, th I think that's right. And I think it, it even goes further and it says that, you know, uh, settlements built since 1967 or even since 1990, you know, uh, are also legitimate. So, you know, it, it, it puts all of that in, in a very different perspective. I do think, though, that there – um, that the question of annexation, and this is the thing that I've come back to time and again as I've tried to analyze this plan, the annexation issue is going to be crucial here. Um, the fact that Israel can annex and that it has the right to is one thing. Whether it should right away is another, right? Uh, because for all of the delegitimization issues that Israel has to deal with, just imagine what happens if it annexes immediately without going through at least some legal process with the United States or even internally. Um, I also think that uh, if annexation takes place immediately, you could end up of ostracizing the Arab uh, states that they're looking to potentially court over time. I think having that as something they keep in their hip pockets for a few months and making it clear that they're willing to negotiate, willing to talk to the Arab states, willing to talk to the Palestinians, this is crucial. It will make it look as if they are in no hurry to do this and that they are really willing to give negotiations a chance but also pocketing the, the benefits that you just mentioned, that now they don't need to uh, get into this debate about what's legitimate or not. Right, right. Now, there seems to me there are three components to the annexation issue. Um, let's start with Jerusalem. Um, part of what this, 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 this plan foresees is that the Palestinian state would indeed have a capital in Jerusalem, or some might say – Eastern Jerusalem, some might even say Jerusalem suburbs, okay, Abu Dis, for example, you and I have been there, uh, Eastern Shuafat, you and I have been there to, together as well. Um, it does give that. And there are those who would say, no, we can't divide Jerusalem at all. On the other hand, I think that, in fact, I know that Jared Kushner would say, look, we're talking about parts of Jerusalem that are beyond the security barrier anyhow, parts of Jerusalem that are totally Arab neighborhoods anyway, parts of Jerusalem where Israeli Jews don't, don't hang out and don't do their shopping anyhow. Why not do that? There are even those who would say, you know what? They can have more of Jerusalem than that if they'll negotiate for it. Why not give them all the Arab neighborhoods, even others as well, where if people don't want to be Israelis in, in those neighborhoods, if they want to be part of a Palestinian state, we can figure that out. Let them have all of that, and then they can have their capital. And under the plan, by the way, the Palestinians get a U.S. embassy in East Jerusalem to go along with that. So that seems to me, again, as I think you're right to say the Israelis shouldn't be too quick to begin to do anything there. But there's a basis for negotiation because in theory you're saying Al-Quds, which is what they call probably call their capital, it can be in East Jerusalem and East Jerusalem suburbs. And then we just need to decide exactly where the lines and security bowers and crossing points are. That doesn't seem something impossible to work out. No, it doesn't. Uh, look, there will be those on the Israeli right that would say, you know, y you can't move that barrier and you don't want to offer more. And I can imagine there being a pretty 
uh, vociferous debate uh, in the Knesset over over that. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, I think the idea should be that um, this should be subject to some negotiation. And I think that's uh, I think that's been missing in 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 the debate here. Quite frankly, mm. people talk about the vision itself, the plan itself, uh, all 180 pages being final. Mm-hmm. Um, it sh- it should not be. Mm-hmm. Um, now it it might be if the Palestinians continue to refuse, and then right. the Palestinian uh, the Israelis bank everything that's in here. Um, but that's not the way that this should work out if we're going to be honest about it. If you want this to be a legitimate deal, if you want it to be something that is seen as more fair, then you want the, the Palestinians to engage. It doesn't mean they're going to get everything that they want, but I think the goal should be to have them at the table. Right. Okay. Annexation, annexation part two is the Jordan Valley. You have an Israeli, you have an Israeli military presence there. They haven't annexed it. There's no way the Israelis I can see are going to give up a military presence there because that is too strategically important. You could have ISIS coming over from Jordan. You could have the Islamic Republic of Iran coming over. You need to, there, there are geographic and other reasons why the Jordan Valley is strategic. The Israelis have been there for a long time. Uh, there are Palestinians in that valley too, and they're growing dates and things like that. And from what I understand, getting along reasonably well with your Israeli neighbors. It's, it's, it's a hard agricultural life there and they, they make it work. Um, no, Need for the Israelis to annex it again anytime very soon, but they also can't give it up anytime soon again. It's more likely that they get angry that the Palestinians are not negotiating and say, well, we'll just take what we need for strategic reasons and that's it. But it's it, again, it doesn't seem like it should be a deal breaker. You can't, one cannot imagine Palestinian soldiers pulling down the Israeli flag and taking up their positions uh, in the Jordan Valley in the next five or 10 or 20 years. No, I think, look, the Israelis have been uh, remarkably consistent about the need to control the Jordan Valley and and their vision for maintaining the Jordan Valley in any future two-state solution. They've done that. If you look at the plan, the plan actually says that even if the Israelis do annex this territory and it is afforded to them um, as one of the upfront um, benefits of agreeing to the deal, the people of the Jordan Valley who are engaged in that agricultural activity are encouraged. And actually, it's stated that they shall remain there as farmers doing their work. So in other words, the Israelis are there for military reasons, for early warning, for having exactly for having uh, a sentinel Mm -hmm. um, on their Mm -hmm. eastern flank looking outward at places like Syria and Iraq and elsewhere. Um, And they want to have radar and they want to have whatever it is that they need there. And I think it's legitimate, uh, but they want to ensure that the Palestinians continue to, uh, you know, to have their lives there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, I, you know, again, I, I think that this is a reasonable component of the plan. Uh, the Palestinians may want to negotiate what some of the borders look like. They may want to negotiate the presence. But again, right now, we're not hearing a thing from them. And um, I think it would be in their interest to begin to engage. So the third part of the annexation puzzle uh, the most emotional part, but I'm not sure it's as difficult as it may appear to be, it has to do with what are called settlements, Israeli communities established in the West Bank. And why do I see, say that it really doesn't necessarily need to be quite as bad as it is? Most of the settlements that would be annexed to Israel are adjacent to Israel. And under this plan, there are territorial swaps that the Palestinians would get in exchange, including an agricultural and a residential area not far from Gaza, including an industrial area also not far from Gaza, 50 billion or so in investments to make sure that they get, get these up to, up to snuff, all that sort of thing. So then the more difficult part are the more, the more isolated Israeli settlements around the West Bank. And that's trickier. Now, under this plan, they say, we don't want anybody being uprooted. We don't want to do what it was done in Gaza. Israeli soldiers having to rip people out of their homes, destroy their homes, dig up cemeteries, move uh, synagogues. We're not going to do all that. Um, it's very emotional. I think there are ways there with goodwill, which we don't necessarily have on both sides. There might be ways to negotiate that to say, okay, I mean, look, it shouldn't be crazy. We have about 20% of Israel's population that is Muslim and Arab. 
you've got three towns in the triangle, which there was talk that under this plan, it's on the so-called triangle, it would move over on the border into Palestinian territory. I understand the Israelis are saying we don't contemplate that. We don't want, and there's 260,000 or so people in that triangle, all of them Arabs. And these are saying, no, they'll stay, they'll stay in Israel. That's fine. Not so crazy you could have a Jewish or Israeli minority living next door. You have Canadians living in America. I know a few. You have Americans living in Canada. I've met a few. Mexico. You could, there are ways to do this, and you could just have to regularize their status in some way that makes sense. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it's really not impossible. It, it shouldn't be. Um, I think that uh, part of the problem is contiguity. This is the thing that I, I you know, I, I've seen, uh, you know, among the criticisms that have come out, forgetting about whether it's too pro-Israel or not pro-Israel enough or whatever it is that people have said, it's that it's that Swiss cheese idea when you look at the map, uh, that if there are ways to close some of those gaps and ensure that it feels like more of a contiguous territory, um, I think you'll find a happier Palestinian interlocutor. But again, I keep coming back to this. If they are not voicing that concern right now, they get zero leverage at the negotiating table. Right. Right. One can imagine if they would come to the negotiating table, they'd get through a lot of the issues you just talked about and said, look, we get it. We're going to live in peaceful coexistence with you. Um, there are a dozen, two dozen, whatever it is, settlements that we think are too much in our territory. We want you to remove them. If that's the last thing on the table... I can imagine some Israeli prime minister saying, it's going to be hard for us, but we'll do it, but we get all the other things we need. We get security. We, we, we get that. It's going to be painful for us. It's going to be painful for us to come in and pull these people out, and we know we have to do it. But we will. Or as you say, we're, we're going to ensure that these Jewish people live right. on the other side. They're going to become Palestinians and we'll agree to that too or because they're they – legal aliens. Right. They, they'll become or something. resident aliens. Correct. They'll have some status yeah. that's not crazy that they that, – that, that, and, and the Palestinians can say, we'll take care of them. Yeah. They'll be under Palestinian law, but we're not going to kill them. That's, no, that's yeah. no longer our aim is to kill them. We'll have neighbors. Yeah. That's not the end of the world. Yeah. All of these things that seem to be possible. Yeah, um, I, I would just note though that there there are a couple of things that probably are still um, yeah. probably worth flagging that could either become hot button issues or problems. Um, when you look at the map, for example, um, you see at the southern uh, sort of uh, most southern point of the West Bank, you see a slice up into Hebron, for example, mm. probably the most controversial settlement that there is. But then again, you have Israelis that have a religious commitment to being there. And I do think that it makes sense to have Israelis be allowed to be there or to visit there. Um, but you can see, I could see moving forward that this could be something that uh, that the Palestinians may want to raise. Again, they have to be at the negotiating table if they want to discuss it. Yeah. And by the way, Hebron is difficult, but keep them, we have to keep this in mind and people should understand this. It has a religious significance to both Muslims and to Jews. Correct. Uh, under uh, under the Israelis, both Muslims and Jews get to have access to it. We have never heard from the Palestinians that if they took Hebron over entirely, Jews would continue to have access. Right. And Jews were pushed out by force of arms from Hebron long before the uh, Jewish state Correct. in the 1930s. Correct. And this is, again, why I think it may be one of the more divisive issues to come out of this. Right now, I think they actually did an admirable job in trying to create a map that would minimize conflict. I think the the Trump team deserves some credit on the, on that particular issue. I will say that probably my, my my biggest challenge in digesting this was the notion that uh, in four years the Palestinians had to solve all of their internal issues, corruption, pay for slay, financing terrorism, et cetera. Those things I think are all very legitimate and should be done in four years. They should have been done yesterday, yeah. right? But then they're also being asked to solve the Gaza conflict as well. Yeah. And that strikes me as just not credible. And if I were advising the team right now, I would say, look, this needs to be done in phases. You solve the West Bank problem first. You, you fulfill the map. You fulfill negotiations and you leave Gaza for later. And we have a vision for it now. But it's so difficult to ask a weak country that cannot get its act together. It's not even a country, obviously, right? Yeah. And it, it, you're being, you're asking them to take over Iran-controlled territory that's also funded by the Qataris and the Turks. Um, it, it's just, I mean, it gives all these other countries a vote 
on the plan. Well, Abbas can't do that. I mean, right. I'd, I'd be fair to him. There's no, he has not. He said, can't. He, he has a house in Gaza, I understand. He hasn't He can't visit it. In yep. years and years and years. He can't go and then sit on the beach there. He'll get worse than sunburn. He just can't do it. He cannot defeat, the, he cannot defeat Hamas. So that's true. But it, so if he could make a deal with the Israelis and they could peacefully coexist with a mini state, a small state in the West Bank and Israel, then you think about what do you do about Gaza going forward? Any number of things. I'll mention one that I do not expect to see in a peace plan. This may seem radical, but it seems also somewhat logical to me. At a certain point, Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which reports directly to Tehran, they continue to do what they've always done, which is to attack Israel. And at a certain points, as in the past, the Israelis say, that's too much. We're going to have to do something about these attacks. What the Israelis haven't done in the past is said, we're going we're, we're to take care of you. We're going get, to get rid of you here. We're not going to allow Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad to exist in the West Bank, partly because what do you do the day after? And there has been talk. There was talk in the last war between Israel and Hamas and uh, that maybe – the Israelis take it over and give it to the Palestinian Authority. And people like Michael Oran, who was an ambassador, a member of Knesset, and an Israeli official said, we can't be the expeditionary force for Mahmoud Abbas when he hates us and will make peace with us. But if he were, if the Palestinian Authority were making peace with Israel, you could consider that at the end of a war, the Palestinian Authority would be put in charge in Gaza by force of arms by their Israeli. Yeah. Natives. I mean, look, th there, there is maybe an incentive there now, which didn't exist before that the two could fulfill the, you know, uh, the Trump peace plan. Uh, the problem is always one of unintended consequences. You know, you go in, you have a conflict and you put Israeli troops on the ground. It gets messy. We know it will. And we know that Hamas has been preparing for this for you know years, if not decades. So it's, uh, it's a real challenge. The only other thing that I wanted to raise in addition to, to Gaza is there's one country that has been surprisingly uh, grumpy about all of this, um, and, and they've been more vocal than they have in the past, and that's Jordan. Mm -hmm. uh, we continue to see Jordanian officials speak out. We, they were speaking out about the plan before it was a plan, before it was unveiled. Um, they are unhappy about the current coordination that they have with the Israelis. There seems to be a, a bigger problem that needs to be unpacked here a bit that, you know, as the Israelis are now kind of wrestling with the idea of whether they make peace with some of the Ar other Arab countries and whether they negotiate with the Palestinians again, all of this, you have a country that has had peace with Israel since the mid-1990s. They have traditionally had a good relationship, good intelligence, good, uh, you know, mill-to-mill -mill cooperation. All these things have been quite good and lately – it's been a very troubled relationship. Yeah. Some of it may not be Israel's fault. Some of it may be Jordan's fault. Who knows? But this to me seems like something that has jumped out and mm. seems um, like a kind of a, a thorny issue that probably needs to be addressed while Israel wrestles with some of these other things. I think you're right. And it's, it's a difficult question. I consider myself to be pro-Jordanian. I think the king is a genuine moderate in the Islamic world. I want to see him survive. Absolutely. But I don't think we can forget some of the facts we know. And one is that what the country we now call Jordan is about 75% of what historically was known as Palestine. That's what it is. And more than 70% of the people of Jordan people we call Jordanians, are Palestinians by any measure. They are ruled by a Hashemite king, which means a king who comes from Arabia from long before it was called Saudi Arabia. This is the traditional custodians family that were the custodians, the rulers of Mecca and Medina, the holiest places in Islam. They couldn't coexist with the Saudis. The British pulled them out, pulled, put them uh, east of the Jordan River, and that's why we have Jordan. Um, they are in any peace agreement that comes about, they're an they have to be an important component, maybe in a Benelux uh, sort of way, some kind of confederation economically or in other ways. I don't know, but but they have to be. But they it's it's very important. But we also have to recognize. Look, I recognize that the king has a difficulty. A lot of his population is very anti-Israeli at this point, and he has to. In order, he's to got lead, a tight rope to walk. He's got a tight rope to walk, and I want to be supportive of him. But we also have to understand. What Jordan has been historically, the history is very important. History is, history is relevant as part of the world. And I think you're right. 
And by the way, Israel is vital to Jordan from a security Correct. point of view, from an energy point of view, from in terms of water. Jordan needs Israel. They don't like to admit that, but they, they do. do. And this is, again, why I'm pointing out now we've heard the sort of squeaky wheel yeah. of, of Jordan. Yeah. I think it's going to be important for Israel to to address this. Um, and maybe the U.S. too. Yeah. Maybe they need more development aid if that will help. I mean, what, $50 billion goes to the Palestinians. How much do, do, does Jordan need to survive and thrive? Right. I don't right. know. Should, shouldn't they get something for having helped be the custodians and, and to be the interlocutors on behalf of the Palestinians for, for all these years? Right. So last question I'll ask you briefly. Let's suppose that you get calls tomorrow from Trump, from Abbas, and from Netanyahu and Gantz. Well, that happened earlier today. That happened earlier today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Your basic advice to all of them is? Look, my, my advice to, to Trump is – uh, slow down on annexation for now. Make sure that the Israelis know that there's benefit for them in staying in the deal and that there's there's a lot that they can gain, uh, but there's no rush. I would say the same thing for Netanyahu. Uh, I would tell him, look, wait, see who engages, make sure that you're bringing the Arab states along with you, and make sure that the Palestinians have every opportunity to engage. But tell them also that there is a limit to your patience. I would say that for Gantz, uh, Netanyahu's challenger, I think he's actually played it right. He said, I want to do this, but I want to do it in concert with the Palestinians, with the Jordanians, and with the Arab world. Mm. And I think he's mm. played it right. The one who's not playing this right is Mahmoud Abbas, which is no surprise. This is a guy who's played almost every hand wrong since he stepped in in 2005, and he's well past his expiration date as as president of the Palestinian Authority. But he is doing what Palestinians have done for generations now, which is to refuse to engage and to miss opportunities to try to negotiate the future of his people. We'd like to see this problem end. We'd like to see a Palestinian national entity come to pass, but it's got to be on the right terms. I think the Trump administration plan has some problems, but in essence, the core of it is not wrong at all. And so Abbas is going to miss out if he doesn't engage. And I think that if he waits until after November, if he waits for the election results here in the United States, I think he will have waited too long. Well... Fascinating and consequential to see how this plays out. We'll be watching carefully. I know you will. We'll want to have you back, Jonathan Shanzer, to talk about this. Oh, I don't know. This. It's a long walk from my office. It's a long walk from your office. And we're glad to have you with us here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas. Foreignpodicy at FDD.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at FDD.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May. You've been listening to Foreign Policy.